If you all remember from a month ago, I know it's hard to remember what was taught last week, but from a month ago, we, we are engaged in the study of the Sermon on the Mount, and as a review, I want to start with kind of the overarching uh, principle here that the way that we look or our perspective on interpretation here is that the Bible makes sense throughout. It is consistent and is therefore internally coherent. Uh, last month, we discussed how Jesus is the central focus and the pivotal point of not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well, not to mention the whole history of mankind. Uh, and the Old Testament points to him. And upon arrival, Jesus introduces his kingdom and says that he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus demonstrates how the Old Testament law finds its ultimate validity and continuity in none other than his teachings. Now, that's to be contrasted with many of the pronouncements you might hear today that the law of God is dead. Uh, to be sure, there's a lot of confusion about the law as applied in our day, but that confusion is not unique to us today. Uh, to be sure, there was confusion when Jesus walked the earth. He faced confusion about this very same issue. He had to contend with the misunderstandings people had of what the Old Testament scriptures really meant. And this confusion resulted because the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, regarded certain oral traditions as equal in authority with the Word of God itself. So last month, we read in Mark 7 uh, that of Jesus' utter contempt for the traditions of men which had contaminated the Scriptures, especially in the light of the tenacity with which these teachers applied the law. Uh, we can see this clearly in the virulent and illogical reaction of the Jewish leaders when Jesus ran afoul of their traditions such as that treasonous act of healing on the Sabbath. Remember, at this point in history, there would not be a printing press for over 1,400 years. So the people, they didn't read the Scriptures. They heard the Scriptures from the teachers of the law. And anything the teachers might add on, I might add. In the passage that we start today, beginning at Matthew 5, verse 21, Jesus does not tell the folks what the Old Testament says, but he says repeatedly, you have heard that it was said, and then, but I say to you. He's not abolishing or negating anything out of the Old Testament, but rather something that they have understood about the Old Testament, which had been clouded by those teachings and traditions of men. Jesus appears to have at least two goals here, throwing out the erroneous traditions and allowing folks to see the true intent and spirit toward which the Old Testament law points. Now, if we look at the other extreme that I mentioned earlier, for those who say that the law is dead and of no applicability today, their champion is supposedly the Apostle Paul, who rightly claimed that Christians are not under the law but under grace, and that Christ is the end of the law. But if you take an honest look at the whole context of Paul's teaching, again, coherency and consistency, you will see that he came to the same conclusions. In Romans 7, 
Paul admits that he once thought that he was keeping the law perfectly by his actions when he realized that the law itself said, thou shalt not covet. He suddenly was convicted because, as it says, when that commandment came, he, Paul, became alive and died. He suddenly realized that what matters was the spirit of the law, that the heart act of coveting was just as reprehensible to God as stealing or adultery itself. Therefore, as it says in Romans 7, Paul's view was not that the law was dead, but rather that the law is holy and the commandment holy and righteous and good. Now, at this point, I must say, if you missed the message last month about Jesus' view of the Old Testament law, you might be thinking, you know, Kent is trying to tell us we're under the Old Testament law. Well, if you're struggling here, remember the, the lens through which we're viewing the Scriptures, that they are consistent and coherent, that God did not make a false start in the Old Testament and then a do-over in the New. I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that Jesus made no difference. Quite the contrary. His teaching was so revolutionary and opposed to his contemporary culture that he was nailed to the cross. He corrected false interpretations. He called out hypocrites. He stared down authoritarians, treating their interpretations as if from God. In other words, he he corrected man's abuse of the Old Testament scriptures. But I do not believe that he corrected his father. Clearly, there are good Christians who have differing views on the interpretation of the word in this issue. But it is also true that Christians can sometimes put their own veneer or gloss on a passage to make it come out a certain way. Uh, When that is done, any teacher, including me, could be guilty of the same offense which Jesus accuses the scribes and Pharisees, placing the traditions of men or their interpretations over the Word of God. Again, the teachers at Lion and Lamb desire that all remain accountable and subject to one another. So, if after today's teachings you're still concerned, I ask that you first go and listen to last month's teaching on the, on the Old Testament law as viewed by Jesus, and on the website, and then come and offer your constructive thoughts so that we might reason together. Fair enough? Okay, so our passage today starts with a discussion about the sixth commandment dealing with murder and hence the title, What is Murder? Well, duh! I mean, I thought about taking a poll about if any of you thought this uh, passage or this, this concept applied directly to you in practical application, but I knew that would kind of be a non-starter. Uh, while this would appear to be a concept and a command about which there is unanimous agreement among Christians and really everybody else, it doesn't take long for us to run into a point of disagreement, particularly among Christians. Does the command, thou shalt not kill, mean that prohibit the taking of all life or just innocent life? Again, good and godly Christians have disagreed on the issue. This passage implicates the weighty issues of capital punishment and war. Some Christians have taken the position that life is so precious 
that any taking of life is contrary to the commandment. And they quickly discard their newer versions of the Bible and pick up a King James, which actually says, thou shalt not kill. Uh, These folks are sometimes labeled as pacifists. And while I disagree with the pacifist position personally, I have much more respect for that position than I do for the, the religious and or political group which argues against capital punishment and war, but yet in favor of abortion. Go figure. The arguments used by both of these groups opposed to war and capital punishment are, one, that the taking of human life is a horrible and final act, and two, that innocent people are killed in war and have been put to death by the state for crimes they did not commit. And these arguments are wholly true. You see, we are well aware today with live coverage of the pain and suffering of innocence brought on by war. There have been unjust wars. And it has also been found to our shame, especially since DNA has been discovered, that some who were put to death long ago were erroneously convicted and punished. So there are miscarriages of justice. But no matter how much you or I may abhor war and loss of life, what matters is not what you and I think, but what God says about the issue. I read a poll just recently that said that fewer than one in three millennial Christians, as I understand those are folks that were born between 1980 and 2000, less than one in three believe in the death penalty. I wonder if God is concerned about that poll, if he's worried. You see, the same God that said, thou shalt not kill, also commanded the Israelites to wage war in order to exterminate corrupt pagans inhabiting the promised land and provides for the death penalty as well. He does this for two reasons, at least, that I can tell. First, he is perfectly just. And not because human life is cheap, but because it is so precious. It is the imago dei, the image of God. And he demands justice whenever life is unjustifiably taken. And those who want to preserve the life of the murderer because it is valuable, lose sight of the value of the innocent victim. God does not make that mistake. In Genesis 9, he tells us, Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whosoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. To say that God is pro-life is a bit of an understatement. So much so that he guards the precious life, his image, jealously. Now, those who oppose capital punishment and all war forget that God gives those in authority, whether of a state or a nation, both here and abroad, the right and 
the responsibility to punish evildoers with the sword, also known as, uh, or which we would refer to as force, as you see in Romans 13. Let's move on here to the misinterpretations of the scribes and Pharisees. While the pacifists might be accused of an expansive interpretation of the Sixth Amendment to prohibit all taking of life, the scribes and the Pharisees went in the opposite direction and restricted the law to the act of murder. Jesus expanded, but he did it in a different direction and gave the true meaning of the law. With those preliminaries out of the way, let's now turn to the substance of what Jesus said, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said of those, by, to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, and some versions add, without cause, will be liable to judgment. Now, I want to take a brief aside here. What is legalism? Okay. Well, legalism is what legalists do, Right? They draw fine lines to impose either one, limitations on their own obligation. Last month we studied Corbin, where the scribes and Pharisees would declare their their possessions set aside to God and avoid their obligation to their aging parents. The other prong of legalism is to impose one's own convictions in gray areas on the liberty of others. An example out of Scripture would be the the meat offered to idols issue that came up. And Paul tells us that there is liberty, but not all things are profitable and not all things build up. So we don't force our liberty on others with different convictions. But I would suggest to you that there is another definition of legalism, what I call a slang definition. And that is this, a standard that is higher or different than mine. Okay? Think about it. Happens something like this. Well, that guy's obviously legalistic. He wore a tie to church. Or she wore a dress longer than mine. Well, if the person with the tie or the longer dress is not imposing their standard on someone else, I would suggest to you that the one guilty of legalism is the person making the accusation of legalism. All this to say that by this slang definition that is so often erroneously applied today by Christians, Jesus himself engages in the highest form of legalism. Because the standard that he set for murder is far above that of the scribes and Pharisees. The way that Jesus interprets the law, murder is not what you think. In the process, we're going to see legalism rear its ugly head, but we are about to peel off the layers from an onion that most people don't even know exists. We're going to try to answer the question, according to Jesus, what is murder? Here, Jesus accuses the scribes and Pharisees of adding to the law, not to the requirements of the law, but to limit their obligation under the law. They accomplish this by restricting the meaning and the demands of the law. In Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the Ten Commandments are found, and it says, Thou shalt not kill or murder, depending on your version. 
period. But apparently, the scribes and the Pharisees added, being in danger of judgment. Now, this addition by them may have come from their reading of Numbers 35. And there it says, starting in verse 30, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. Okay? Now, this passage in Numbers guarantees due process. There will be a judicial proceeding to determine guilt. It provides protection for the accused by a minimum evidentiary standard of more than one witness, as well as protection for the public. It prevents a wealthy or a popular convicted person or his friends from paying off corrupt officials to get out of a sentence. And these are all good things. So what's the big deal? What does Jesus here try to correct? Well, the fact that there are procedural protections provided through a fair hearing to determine the truth and prevent favoritism does not mean that the basic commandment has been changed. But the scribes and the Pharisees did just that. What's the effect of adding, you shall be in danger of judgment? One, this addition narrows the scope of the commandment to the sole question of committing actual murder, thereby weakening the whole command. Secondly, they reduce the penalty to being caught and punished. This change makes the command say, in effect, don't commit murder. Why? Because if you do, you might be punished by the authorities, period. End of command. Now, this is akin to a Christian parent telling her 13-year-old that he should not shoplift. Why not? Everybody else does. Because you might get caught and wind up in juvenile court. Well, that parent has lost the vital teaching moment to help her young person understand the moral reason that stealing is wrong in the eyes of God, it violates the golden rule, and it is contrary to God's character of purity, honesty, and righteousness. Instead, she teaches him to avoid consequences. Now, We as parents know that consequences have their place. You know, the law is for the lawless. But Christians should not live their lives out of the fear of consequences, but rather out of the love for the righteousness of God. One might ask, well, isn't punishment for murder a good thing? Yeah, it is. But Jesus goes on to explain how this limitation emasculates the intent and content of the sixth commandment. Now, let me explain here, please. Let me ask, what is missing from the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees about the consequences of murder and civil judgment? Isn't it the judgment of God? Uh, The scribes and the Pharisees made this a purely legal matter, as legalists are known to do. What was important to them? The letter of the law. Of course, to take the life of another is a terrible act and should be punished by the authorities. But as long as the scribes and Pharisees did not commit actual murder, they could face the commandment, Thou shalt not kill, and say to himself and others, I have kept and fulfilled the law. Well, Jesus set them straight. His response, not so fast, slick. 
He then goes on to explain how this teaching is blind to the true intent of the Sixth Commandment. Just as Paul, before his conversion, thought he had faithfully kept the law, just like the rich young ruler, because both had been taught this erroneous interpretation. However, we can be guilty of the same when we keep the law only negatively, when we accept only the letter, but forget the whole spirit, content, and meaning of God's holy law. Jesus helps us understand that spirit and meaning of the law of murder. He makes at least three points to teach us about what God intended for the fulfillment of the Sixth Commandment. First, it is not mere letter, but the spirit that matters. Yes, taking life is wrong, but the commandment goes far beyond the act of taking life to include anger, or some versions say causeless anger, in our hearts with our brother or sister. In verse 22, it says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, again, some say without a cause, will be liable to judgment. Jesus uses their own words, liable to judgment, not to emphasize that a person who is angry without a cause uh, should be put to death, but that causeless anger is a violation of the spirit of the law and in God's eyes is equivalent to murder. He, ex- he exposes the spiritual content of the law of Moses, is, uh, which, the, which Israel uh, dismissed or missed. To hate, to feel bitterness or resentment toward another is as reprehensible to God as actually taking of innocent life. And the punishment deserved is the divine judgment of hell. John seems to agree, 1 John three fifteen. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Secondly, beyond causeless anger, verse 22 says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. The King James uses the verse here, uh, says reka uh, instead of insult. And reka means worthless person. In other words, it's an attitude and an expression of of contempt. Have you ever heard somebody say, or perhaps said yourself, you know, that person, he is worthless. When we do, we are dismissing as without value a being who was created in the image of God. In Matthew 15, Jesus rebukes the scribes and Pharisees for focusing on the outward. He then says, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts along with murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemies. So these evil thoughts which become contempt, scorn, and derision is the very spirit that leads to the taking of life. Now, you and I, hopefully, will be able to exercise self-control and not let it get to the point of killing someone. However, in essence, in our minds, in our thoughts, in our very hearts, have we not murdered that person? Jesus tells us that in the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder, that murder includes not just destroying life physically, but also trying to destroy the spirit and soul of a person. Thirdly, he expands the scope of the commandment again. Whoever says, you fool, 
shall be liable of hell fire. Now, while calling somebody worthless is an expression of contempt, calling someone a fool is an expression of abuse. It's the actual vilifying of a person. It's the outward expression of hatred and bitterness in the heart. So, to summarize these points, Jesus confronts us with the hard truth that not only does the Sixth Commandment condemn the actual taking of innocent life, but even all evil within our hearts, the feelings, sensibility, and ultimately our spirit. But thirdly, the vilifying words that come out of our hearts through our mouths. All these are regarded by God as, as reprehensible as murder. Now, another little aside here. Another issue that comes up with Christians is, is all anger wrong? Okay? And those who say not will point to Jesus himself confronted uh, when he confronted the scribes and Pharisees with pretty strong words, including blind, hypocrites, even, oh, fools and slow of heart to believe, and you fools and blind. Yeah, Jesus spent what we know as the whole chapter of Matthew 23 raking the scribes and Pharisees over the coals over their view and application of the law, repeatedly calling out to them, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Well, how do we reconcile his exposition of the law to us with his own words to the scribes and Pharisees? Well, first we need to recognize that Jesus speaks as one having the authority of God, which he is. And secondly, he is speaking in a judicial matter. That is, he's made a judgment. He is pronouncing judgment upon the scribes and Pharisees after his offer of the gospel and their subsequent rejection of that offer. Jesus consistently condemns false religion, hypocrisy, and self-righteousness. So, I would answer the question, is anger always wrong, with the caution that we should always follow Jesus. First, make sure that we're on solid ground in order to condemn what he condemns. And secondly, very importantly, our anger must only be against sin, never against the sinner. Psalm 97 exhorts us, You that love the Lord hate, not evildoers, hate evil. The bumper stickers tell us that hate is not a family value, but it is a biblical value when it's applied to sin. Now, this is exactly the point of Mike's recent series, God Hates, and Paul reminds us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, not the men. That's in Romans 1. The closer we grow to God the more righteous indignation we should feel towards sin. Now, in our day, the church is being challenged from both directions, particularly as the culture normalizes sexual sin. Some will be tempted to hate the sinners, while others will be tempted to, well, just get over it. It's no big deal. The first group accelerates the decline in culture with its unbiblical hatred of sinners. Witness the Westboro picketers. 
The second and much larger group accelerates the decline of the church by associating God's name with sin. Witness the mainline denominational celebration of same-sex marriage and ordination of unrepentant sodomists. Now, I personally would not want to be in either group when my reward in heaven is being weighed by God. But instead of hating people, we should be praying for homosexuals and, yes, the picketers, that they would get it figured out in light of God's word. In this passage, Jesus makes it clear what God meant when he proclaimed, Thou shalt not kill. God sees the heart and is concerned not just with the outward action. He forbade what we, God forbid, that we fall into self-righteousness by reducing the law of God to something we know we've already kept because we just haven't murdered anybody. Let every man and woman examine self. Now, up to this point, we've been addressing the great thou shalt not, a negative. Uh, Jesus proceeds now to explain the practical application of the concept and attitude in the positive. In verse 23, 23 excuse me. so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now, if you're like me, you may have always taken this passage that I just read as the beginning of a separate section or teaching. But now I understand that the sixth commandment does not just say to not murder or say unkind things or hold hatred in our hearts against another. It also commands us to take positive steps to get right with our brother or sister. In other words, get to the point where there is nothing separating us in spirit. Jesus uses the example of the very subtle practice of balancing moral failure with good deeds and acts of worship. The scribes and Pharisees were experts at this. They would judge and condemn others with contempt and then devoutly attend temple services and carefully follow every jot and tittle the minutiae of the law. In this way, they could avoid a guilty conscience as they were worshiping and offering gifts at the altar. Is it possible that you and I can do the same? Uh, can we balance our sin or offense against someone else with a gift here, serving on a committee or a board there, doing this ministry or that, thinking our good will outweigh the evil or sin in our lives? All of us should consider our motives in what Jesus said to the scoffing Pharisees in Luke 16. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Again, Jesus gives us a clear contrast of the attitudes in Luke 18 in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Or it says, starting in verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers and, and uh, adulterers 
And even like this tax collector by me. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Could you or I be like that Pharisee at times, doing things, good things, while holding hatred, bitterness, or unresolved offenses in our hearts? I think it's a fair question. The point of Jesus' continued exposition about murder is that if we are angry or hateful, if we say or do unkind things to others, we have violated the spirit of the law of murder. And it is more important to God that we take affirmative action to make things right with our brother or sister offended. So much so that God tells us to keep God waiting on our gifts, our prayers, and our worship. Why? Because the Lord is pure and the psalmist said in Psalm 66, if I regard or hold wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. We can't be right with God if we're not right with man. This is all consistent with the many one another verses that you've heard over the years, including John 15, 17. This I command you that you love one another. Can we afford not to obey his command? Saul learned this lesson very well when he was commanded to wipe out the Amalekites entirely. Instead, he spared some of the people and some of the animals so that he could offer the animals as sacrifices to God. Uh, Saul wanted to worship God. But Samuel's rebuke is instructive here. Does God delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obedience to the Lord's command? Obedience is better than sacrifice. When we fall short of God's commands, we want to compensate. Balance it out with something good. That's why Jesus tells us, if you've committed murder in your heart by offending another before you worship, leave. In fact, run. Make it right with your brother or sister and then come back to worship because obedience is better than sacrifice. This is also why when we take the Lord's table, as we will today, all are strongly encouraged to examine self. And if you're reminded of an offense, deal with it first. Even if you can't today and, you're, and you can't take the elements of the communion, much better that you deal with the offense first before you come and worship. 1 John 3 tells us, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Now, reconciliation within the body of Christ when there's been an offense, is not just commanded, but it brings peace. You know, I was reminded of many years ago when a, a good brother, Christian brother, came in uh, to my office 
And uh, he had been sued by another guy uh, over a business transaction. Uh, and uh, so I did the lawyer thing. I tried to talk to the other lawyer, and, and uh, you know, we just weren't getting anywhere. You know, we were headed for court. Uh, and it was a very trying situation. But then my client came back and told me that he'd gone to a promise keepers conference and got an earful about the importance of peace and forgiveness. And then as he was leaving the stadium, he walked into the eyes of the plaintiff. And the two looked at each other. They approached one another. They held each other and cried together. And God resolved easily and peacefully what legalistic lawyers could not. And that leads us to the last principle in dealing with murder today. Urgency. Come to terms quickly with your accusers while you are, the King James uses, in the way or going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny or uttermost farthing for you King James folks. We must always remember not only our offenses against others, but we must think of ourselves before a just and a holy God who is our judge and justifier and he is perfect justice. His laws are absolute and he has a right to demand the last penny. But if we procrastinate, we put off making things right with those we have offended, the process of the law will be set in motion and the last penny will be demanded of us. This has nothing to do with losing your salvation or whether you'll go to heaven. However, it has everything to do with our judgment as believers in heaven. Right now, you and I are in the way with others. That is, we are in the world. We are walking along the road of life. And as sinners, we have offended, perhaps we've stole, we've lied, we've said unkind things, we've had hatred in our hearts, perhaps, and we've essentially murdered somebody in our hearts, or perhaps even we have actually taken the life of an innocent one. But if we humbly confess if we seek forgiveness and we make things right to the extent possible, we're good in God's eyes. We're forgiven. Even though there may be consequences to pay down here. But what if I recall something or worse, somebody walks up to me and said, Kent, you never made that right with me. The hard reality is that you and I have no claim on tomorrow. We don't even have a claim on the next minute. You ever heard of somebody dropping dead like that through a heart attack? It happens. Jesus warns us here to agree with our adversaries, come to terms when? Quickly, while you're in the way with him, because we don't know when we will miss our last opportunity to make things right. We need to take care of business now because we do not want to arrive in heaven with accounts payable to any other man. Let's step back 
and take a look at the terms offered here by Jesus. They may seem harsh to some, but actually they are very good and easy terms. On our part, we are to face and acknowledge our sin, confess it without any reservation to God. We've got to resist the temptation to defend ourselves, balance our guilt, justify our actions, even if the other person is guilty of some wrong or provocation. I should do everything practically and morally possible to make things right and quickly. Whether restitution is possible or not, I should humble myself before that person and God. God's response, Kent, although you are a guilty sinner and even a murderer in my eyes, although you, the debt you owe, you can never repay, I forgive you. Why? Not because you're good, kind, and loving. Not because you went to church or served in this ministry or gave your money. But because I sent my son into the world and he went to the cross and experienced an excruciating death in order to pay your debt. It is because of that sacrifice and that only that I forgive you freely, completely, and absolutely. Each of us has to decide for ourselves. We've got to take responsibility or ownership for that decision. Speaking for myself as a corrupt sinner and a murderer in God's eyes, I am compelled to accept the terms of his loving offer. It is simply an offer. I cannot refuse. What about you? Father, we give our praise to you. And we know that we have failed. We have fallen short that we have harbored bitterness in our hearts, perhaps even voiced that bitterness to others. Lord, give us the wisdom, the insight to know what to do, how to make things right, how to make restitution, how to reconcile with our brothers or sisters or anyone that we may have offended. And Lord, help us always to remember that it is not by our Obeying all the commands because we never will. But we are called to do what we can. It is only because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross that we may spend eternity with you. Only because you loved us so much that you sent him here and you gave a reason, a payment in your perfect justice for our sins. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. We give all praise and glory to you. Amen.